episode 94 of Board Game Blitz, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network and a podcast about all things board games that you can listen to in less time than it takes to figure out what games to buy yourself in early December when you know you're getting gifts later in the month. Board Game Blitz is sponsored by Gray Fox Games. This week, we're digging into the importance of theme. First, we discuss a book called Tortured Cardboard and a couple games we've played recently, Roll Estate and Silver and Gold. Then, we talk about how the theme of a game can affect the experience players have when playing it and its overall likability or appeal. Finally, we wrap things up with a look at the etymology of the word point. And now, here are your hosts, Ambie and Crystal. One quick announcement before we hop into the main episode. The day after this episode releases, PAX Unplugged is beginning in Philadelphia, and I am going to be there. So if you are going to PAX Unplugged, you should definitely stop me and say hello. Uh, I might be at the Dice Tower booth a little bit. I'm definitely going to be wandering around. And we're doing a meetup, but RSVPs were required in advance for the meetup. So if you don't have your tickets yet, um, I'm not certain if you'll be able to attend because we had to give the uh, venue a final headcount a few days in advance of the event. If you do want to come to our breakfast meetup on Saturday and don't have tickets yet, try and reach out to me and I will see if that is possible, but I can't guarantee anything at this point. If you are coming to our meetup, it is the Flipsterific Super Saturday Blitzketeer Breakfast and that is happening at 8 a.m. on Saturday and we're really excited about it. Me uh, moderator Chris from Flip the Table and Flip Flory are all hosting it together and we're going to be giving away some really cool prizes, including one thing that I cannot tell you all about, but I'm so excited about it. Uh, I hope everyone can join me for the meetup and if you're not going to the meetup, just stop me and say hello at PAX Unplugged. I would love to say hi to everybody. So recently I haven't been playing many games, but I have... I mean, that, again, understandable. <laughs> you do not need to excuse yourself. Yes, but I have read a book that's about board games. I got a review copy of this book called Tortured Cardboard. It's by Philip E. Orbanes with The Games Gnome. So it, it's basically a book that's about a bunch of different board games. It has like 15 or so chapters, and each chapter is about a different board game. Classic board games like Monopoly and Scrabble, but it also has Catan in there. Um, and it goes over some history of how it was made and then some life lessons that you can learn from that board game. So I thought that was a pretty interesting concept. The writing style I wasn't really a fan of because the way it works is there's the author and then there's the character, the games gnome, who's actually the co-author. He was also a designer of board games. But there's a lot of dialogue between these two people, and it's like semi-fiction and like a cross between that and non-fiction. And then the story part like isn't that interesting, I think, because they're just like talking and like going to these different places and then just talking about the history. So all of the interesting part is in dialogue, which I don't really like, but some people might like that. Uh, but I thought the histories of the games was actually pretty interesting. It talks about how they got popular, and a lot of it is luck and chance and timing. I mean, that seems to be the case for not just board games, but for lots of things <laughs> in life, right? Yeah, that's true. But yeah, it was impressive. Like, it's getting like popular everywhere for a lot of these classic games, and it was interesting reading about that because a lot of the games you don't think of them as like we don't play games like Monopoly now that much, <laughs> but it got popular for a reason and was like part of the timing of like what was happening in the world at the time and then like 
everything. So I thought that was interesting. And like one one tidbit is that the name of Risk, the game, was the initials of four of someone's grandchildren. Huh. <laughs> so it was R-I-S-K. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with the game itself. Yeah. And then people liked it. So, so yeah, it went into like the naming of games too. So that was cool. <laughs> that is neat. So why is the book called Tor- Tortured Cardboard? Oh, so that's... they. That's what it is when, like, when you make board games, you torture cardboard. Oh. <laughs> so, so they mention that all the time. Like, oh, yeah, they tortured a bunch of cardboard to make this game or something. So we've anthropomorphized cardboard now. <laughs> I mean, we've already kind of done that, I guess, in board games. But yeah. Interesting. But yeah, that's tortured cardboard. Yeah. Well, speaking of Monopoly, I I know you played regular Monopoly recently, and I actually Mm -hmm. really want to because I haven't played it in a long time, but I did just order myself a copy of Monopoly Tropical Tycoon, which Mm -hmm. is the version that came out in 2007, and it was designed by, is it Rob Davio? Yes, it is Rob Davio. And this is kind of the Monopoly version that everyone says is like the best version of Monopoly. I found it on eBay for $22, including shipping. And I messaged moderator Chris about this and he literally (laughs) replied back in all caps, I hate you. (laughs) Because that's such, like it's really hard to find this game for that price and I'm really excited. So it's coming in the mail soon. It might actually arrive before PAX Unplugged. So if it does, I might bring it with me. I don't know. It's coming in a metal tin because it's like a collector's edition of the game or something. I don't know how well that's going to go through airport security. That's suspicious, (laughs) but we'll figure it out. All right. Well, I, at my game night recently, got to play a couple games that kind of fit into a similar genre. So I got to play Roll Estate, which was actually the game that Chris and I discussed on when he was a guest on, here on the podcast. And then I also got to play Silver and Gold, which is a game by Phil Walker Harding, who I have talked about a lot on the podcast as one of my favorite designers. So Roll Estate, which is the game Chris designed, is available on Print and Play Arcade, pnparcade.com. It only costs $3 and it is a print and play game. So you have to print it out on your own, but there aren't, it's just the sheets. There isn't a lot of components that you have to make or anything like that. Um, And it is basically a marrying of Yahtzee and Monopoly in the form of a roll and write game. And I know, I know a lot of hobby gamers are going to hear Monopoly and Yahtzee and kind of go, ugh. (laughs) But so this game is definitely more like Yahtzee than Monopoly. And that's mostly because of the dice rolling. So there are uh, a whole bunch of different uh, streets and then there are businesses on each street on your sheet. And you roll dice like you do in Yahtzee and try and collect sets of different types. So ones, twos, threes, fours, you know, four of, the, four of a kind, three of a kind of a certain thing, or what is essentially a Yahtzee, but it's called something different in the game. And it was funny, we were like, I looked at what it was called and I was like, we should call it that, not Yahtzee. And then we were all like, yeah, we're just going to call it Yahtzee. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's not, that's what your brain wants to do. So you collect things on these streets but what's interesting is there's three different spots two or three spots on each street and when you write down a number the numbers to the left of it will have to be smaller and the numbers to the right of it will have to be larger so if you're like let's say you're in the row of fives if you want to write a number in the middle spot sure like let's say you rolled three fives you could write down 15 in that middle spot but that means the only numbers that you can write to the left of it would either be five or ten And then the numbers to the right of it would have to be bigger than 15, so 20 or 25, because there's only five dice total. So you have to make some interesting decisions as to when to write things down on each row and where to place the numbers when you place them. 
If players fill in all three or two spots in a street, they get to claim one of the businesses on that street. And that locks out that business from other people to collect it. All of the things that you write down, whether it's the numbers on the streets or the businesses, will give you money. And the end of the game, the goal is to have the most money. It is at its core pretty simple, but honestly, I feel like this is really a perfect next step game for when you're trying to get people who aren't already into the hobby into the hobby. We, we say things like Ticket to Ride is a gateway game a lot. And I think as like Eric Summerer pointed out on a recent episode of the Dice Tower podcast, Ticket to Ride isn't approachable for everybody, not right away. It is for some people, but not everyone. And I feel like if you had family members who really loved Yahtzee, and maybe they were familiar with the idea of Monopoly, if you brought this game out, there would be familiarity there that would make it really approachable. So I really liked Roll Estate. I think there are a couple things that I that could be improved upon on it. And what's nice is since it is a print and play game, Chris can actually make changes to it whenever he wants. So I sent over a couple messages to him su suggesting a couple of things. But honestly, I think if you are looking for a light dice rolling game, Roll Estate is a really great one to have. And for $3, I mean, come on, you can't beat that. Yeah. Then the other game I wanted to talk about briefly is Silver and Gold. So Silver and Gold is published by NSV, designed by Phil Walker Harding. And this is a flip and write game. But what's interesting is instead of writing on a board like you do in most roll and writes or a sheet of your own, is you're actually writing on the cards themselves, which everybody keeps saying. And I was fascinated by the idea of this one is a little bit hard to picture without seeing it. So I would say if you're near a phone or computer, give this one a Google so you can look at what the cards look like. But basically, all of the cards have weird square based shapes on them in different configurations. And then those squares will have items in them in some amount. All of the cards have a number of squares that are equal to the number of points you will score for completing that card. And during the course of a round, you'll have two cards in front of you at any given time, and a separate deck of cards with Tetris-like polyomino shapes will get flipped over, and then you will use those shapes to draw in X's onto the cards in front of you to fill them in. Your goal is to complete completely fill in every card in front of you and then you'll score it. Some cards will give you bonuses at the end of the game. Some cards will give you uh, coins or let you score for palm trees, which are visible in the display. It is at its core a very simple game, which I say a lot about Phil Walker Harding's designs, but it is just one of those games that is super satisfying to play. Filling in those cards and completing them and scoring bonuses, it just all feels really, really good. <laughs> I don't I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. Like it feels like it shouldn't be as amusing as it is because it's so simple, but it works really really well. I actually so I played this on Thursday with my game group. I immediately ordered a copy off Amazon. The reason I've ordered it off Amazon is because I need it quickly because I plan on taking it to Thanksgiving when I visit my family, which now will be in the past when you all are hearing this. But yeah, this is we're recording before Thanksgiving. <laughs> so hopefully I will have gotten to teach it to them and they will enjoy it. But yeah, I'd say silver and gold may not look like much at face value. I would highly recommend people try this one if they like roll and write as a genre or if they like games with polyomino shapes in them, which I admit there are a bunch of now, but this is a great one. I'm definitely adding it to my collection immediately. And it's since it's card based, it can go in my quiver, which always makes me happy. So nice. uh, that is Silver and Gold from NSV. 
Yeah, that looks pretty cool. I was looking at pictures as you're talking about it. It's hard to describe well mm -hmm. in an audio format, <laughs> I will admit. <laughs> For this week's thematic segment, we're touching on something that we've definitely explored in some ways in the past, probably in a lot of our episodes, but we wanted to talk about the importance of theme in a game and specifically light themes versus dark themes. And when I say light versus dark, I don't necessarily mean color palettes. I mean the actual theme <laughs> itself being light or dark. Because I think good and bad doesn't work here. Light and dark is a more clear description of, I think, what mm -hmm. we're talking about. Yeah. But actually, it's funny that you mentioned color palettes because a lot of times light themes are like bright, light colors and dark themes are darker colors. Yeah, it's, so, it's rare that you see something different. I actually was kind of surprised when a remake of a game that I really enjoyed came out and the color palette was very neon. So in 2018, Neon Gods got released, which is a re-implementation of the game City of Remnants. And it is a very dark game, but the new version is so brightly colored. And it, that seems almost jarring to me because the subject matter of the game, it, at least the original game, it was very dark. There's cops that are kind of coming over and there's a black market and there's lots of dark things going on. But when you look at Neon Gods, it's neon pink and yellow and blue. So it, hmm. I, I don't know how that affects a game, but I, I think I would agree with you that in general, that's definitely not the norm. It's yeah. a game looks light, it often is light. And if it looks dark, it often is dark. Mm -hmm. Another thing I was thinking was that as far as gameplay, a lot of light themes go with lighter games that are easier to get into and vice versa, like dark themes like Cthulhu Wars or something. That's a pretty heavy game, I think. I haven't played it, but it's a huge box. So I mean, I've seen, seen people toting around all of the components <laughs> on a literal, like, cart, like, yeah. four feet high. So, yeah, I would say uh, heavy is probably an apt description. Yeah, but then there's light games like Cat Lady or something. Those are light themes and also a light game. So I think that what you're saying is definitely true. But I do think that we are starting to shift away from that because I think people are recognizing that a lot of the themes that were getting paired with super lightweight games are themes that people genuinely like. And so mm -hmm. those types of themes are being put into heavier weight games now. And I would yeah. say nothing on the like far end of the heavy scale, but I think Wingspan is actually a really good example. Like mm -hmm. collecting birds and observing birds and like laying eggs, that feels very light to me, but the gameplay is not, it's not super light in mm -hmm. Wingspan. Yeah, that's true. But um, when I think of super light, I think of also like silly. Yeah. So like Wingspan is, is more serious light theme, I guess. <laughs> That's true. I, I think my default when I think of light games is like cute games. Oh like, yeah, cute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like cute animals or mm -hmm. things like that. Like when you think of that. But then there are games like Root. Where you have oh, cute, true. Yes. cute animals who are battling <laughs> each other. So yeah, that one, cool. it's technically a kind of darker theme because it's like factions of animals going to war with one another in the forest. But the artwork is really quite adorable. Uh -huh. So that's where I think, I think designers and developers are recognizing that people don't just want Cat Lady, tiny light <laughs> game, yeah. and Cthulhu Wars 
big, heavy, dark, deep game is like gamers are more picky and more nuanced and more intelligent about the types of games that they want to play. And I think that we're being given more options now, which is really quite lovely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I'm trying to think of a dark theme that's a light game. Maybe like uh, social deduction games. Social deduction games, yes. yeah. That I mean, something like Secret Hitler. Yeah, like Secret Hitler. Which I, a... I am not generally that big of a fan <laughs> of. But, mm-hmm. um, or what about like even, so you mentioned Cthulhu games. Elder Sign is a pretty lightweight oh, game. yeah. But the, technically the theme of that is very dark. Yeah, the theme is the same as like Arkham Horror and Mansions yeah. of Madness. Like it's the same um, family of games. I would say the grizzled would also fall into this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not super hard to learn. It's pretty yeah. light as cooperative games go. And that actually leads me to something else that I wanted to bring up, which I think while the artwork and the art style kind of lends itself to this, I think that that also contributes to an abstraction of the theme that mm-hmm. can make it more palatable. So I think the best example I have of this is Pandemic. If you Mm -hmm. actually think about what pandemic is about, there are four deadly diseases (laughs) spreading across the entire globe. And you are a team of people attempting to save the world. Like, that's about as dark as you can get. Like, everyone's gonna die. Mm -hmm. But when you look at a board of pandemic or when you're playing pandemic, I don't think it elicits quite as much tension or darkness as some other games do because it seems very abstracted there are no people that you're saving in the game like you don't see the people you're saving you see cubes and Mm -hmm. you have a character but that's it and so I think it kind of makes what would be a really dark theme more approachable and a little bit more enjoyable as a game because I do think if it elicited all the things that that situation would elicit that it wouldn't necessarily be fun anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's probably similar with war games. Like, I haven't played a war game, but yeah, those are definitely very abstracted. You wouldn't actually want to be in a war. So, What's the name of the game? Oh, gosh, I can't remember. The one that everyone... Is it This War of Mine? That oh. everyone says is, like, makes you really yeah. think when you play it. Mm-hmm. And people kind of like, they really think it's a wonderful game, but they don't want to play it again because it really makes you think about things in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't played it and I kind of would like to because I, I, I enjoy game experiences that do something different. Yeah. So, and it's one of the reasons that I did enjoy a lot of the parts of holding on the troubled life of Billy Kerr because it's unique and it does something different and it makes you think in a way that a lot of games don't. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, that's also a very dark theme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we mentioned the Cthulhu stuff earlier, but that is obviously fictional. I do think for me personally, a lot of the games that I view as really dark are the ones that do deal with real world mm-hmm. events or are tied to the real world in a more tangible way. So things like Black Orchestra or Letters from Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. Even honestly, I put I put Robins, Robinson Crusoe on my list, which I think even though it looks kind of light, you're stranded on a deserted <laughs> island trying to survive. That's a pretty dark theme. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, I guess a lot of games, they need darker themes because there's conflict and you're trying to overcome that conflict. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, like 
what you know the purpose of a game what is it and i think that we've discussed this in the past but there's a lot of different things but if you do have players that are competing against one another mm -hmm. generally having some form of conflict either against the game itself or against the other players is important to create some of that tension because otherwise mm -hmm. it becomes boring yeah so i think a lot of real world situations like war kind of fighting in general yeah. lends itself to that and so i think that's why if you looked i wonder in history how many games have been created that had direct physical combat or conflict as a part of the game i would say there's probably a lot yeah and that was something that the book that i read tortured cardboard was mentioning i think in the Catan chapter because it was after the world war ii and germany they, they didn't want to make games that have like fighting in it so then Catan came out and it was like a new thing to it was hard to make conflict without combat so that's where they made like the economic conflict i guess more <laughs> and that became really popular so was there stuff before Catan that did I mean, this thing because yeah probably because monopoly came before Catan, but like I get a lot of games were combat oriented, I think. That's actually a really good point is did there was a lot of really horrific fighting that took place in Europe in the early 20th century. And so this idea of Euro games where mm -hmm. there isn't, you know, direct yeah. person versus person combat was that kind of a form of escapism? Because yeah. if, you've, if you've seen all of that fighting in real life, maybe you don't want to, you know, sit down on game night and have yeah. to deal with it there too. Yeah. Whereas I think those of us in America, at least a lot of us now, I, I, board games weren't as popular, I think, in America for a long time, at least not the same way they were in Germany. But I, I also think a lot of Americans weren't as directly touched by specific wars as a lot of people in Europe were. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I am speaking from a place as a 34-year-old who has never <laughs> experienced a lot regarding war, and so I recognize that my opinions might not be completely accurate. And I do know that there are a lot of people in America who have been part of our armed forces, gone overseas, and been part of a lot of very horrific direct conflicts. So I'm not diminishing those experiences at all, but I think overall a lot of people in America don't actually know what war is like especially mm -hmm. today. Like we really just don't have an idea. You see it on television and I don't think that that gives people my age or younger a really clear idea of what war is like. Like I I was five years old when the Berlin Wall came down, I think, 89, right? I believe. 89, yeah. So I, was I was four. <laughs> yeah, like, and so like there, those are, I think that's kind of when things started to get rebuilt over there. It's an interesting thing. And yeah, I feel like games are a form of escapism that kind of allow you to get away from those real world things. And mm -hmm. maybe that's why now we're seeing things like this war of mine, because people are recognizing that maybe not everybody understands that experience. And it is something that you would want to learn about in the form of a game. Mm -hmm. But then there's also lighter games, like light theme games that are heavier strategically. I think viticulture would probably be a good example of that. Like winemaking to me feels like a very light theme, like growing <laughs> grapes and making wine, mm -hmm. but that's a heavier game strategy yeah. wise. So again, I think it's that nuance. I think designers are starting to recognize that we as gamers don't just want characters fighting each other <laughs> on a map. You know, we want more nuanced um, game experiences. And 
it's weird. I tend to gravitate toward both light and dark games, depending on my mood and the situation. Like, there mm-hmm. isn't one that I would say that I definitely prefer over the other. I think I tend to play more light games, but I think there are also more light-themed games in general. So I don't necessarily know if that's a preference thing. Because some of those darker-themed games are some of my favorites that I really enjoy. That's true, yeah. I'm trying to think of, like, my favorite games and what what the themes are. Um. I actually looked (laughs) through on Board Game Geek. I looked at, like, the top couple hundred games Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know, could I define these as definitely a really light theme or definitely a really dark theme? And a lot of them, I kind of think, fall in the medium area where Mm -hmm. it isn't definitively one or the other. And I was kind of omitting the fantasy-based ones or the fictional ones. Like, Twilight Imperium is obviously people fighting, but it's set in a fictional universe. So to me, that doesn't seem like as dark of a theme. Whereas Mm -hmm. Twilight Struggle definitely seems like a dark theme because it is based on real world conflict. Mm -hmm. But like terraforming Mars, like that doesn't feel light (laughs) or dark dark, to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it is. It just exists. (laughs) Right. Like same thing, like even Scythe, like there is some combat in Scythe that that doesn't Mm -hmm. feel, you know, Terra Mystica, the castles of Burgundy, like this stuff doesn't (laughs) feel like, And I think that those types of games, while they're still going to be popular, I think that they are going to become less of the norm as we move forward and as game designers kind of start to stretch their muscles and do more things with Mm -hmm. games. Well, we we haven't uh, introduced her yet, but we have a very special guest with us here on the podcast today. So um, if you all aren't aware, we have a bunch of different tiers on our Patreon. And if you back at a certain level, you actually could sit in on our recording sessions and we have someone with us today. Hi, Pam. Hello. We are so happy to have you joining us today. And we wanted to get your thoughts on our discussion today and what you think about theme and games or anything else that you want to throw out. Honestly, you can say anything you want. <laughs> wow, that's that's a little dangerous. <laughs> I mean, we'll take it. You're, okay. you're supporting the show. So it's, this is your platform to say whatever you want. Yeah, you know, just as you were discussing the lighter and darker games, I'm just going, I'm looking at my shelves and thinking, I really have a lot of dark games. Does that say something dangerous about me. Um, but I, I think it's it's more about, I mean, we have an incredible benefit of, of you know, living in the United States where things are pretty cush. Really, they and, are. <laughs> and, you know, do we, do we need to bring darkness in from the outside, which is very strangely a good problem to have, I guess. Right. And then, you know, you're talking about, about the problem of, of, you know, I'm significantly older. Um, and... <laughs> Vietnam was ending when I was born. Okay. But until, like, from that point, well, even from, from like, the Civil War, I think, until 9-11, there was no active war on U.S. soil. Well, yeah. barring, sorry, apologies to World War II, Hawaii, but, like, the contiguous United States did not see any destruction of a significant scale. So playing war games was fun, to many people because they'd never seen the true destruction where in Europe, I mean, London and Paris, all these, all these countries were just bombed constantly and so much destruction. So yeah, wanting to play any sort of combat, like, no, I don't want to think about that. I want to just uh, raise some sheep and, and, and trade some wood and get away from all that. So I think, I think those were very, very good points that, that uh, both of you made. So. Yeah. I think it's, it's interesting because like, 
I think most of us would say we don't generally want to play a board game about the thing that we do for a living. Right. Like, <laughs> like I, you know, like I work in marketing. I don't necessarily want to play a board game where I'm a marketing copywriter because I already do that all day, every day. We want to do something different. And yeah, for those of us who haven't really experienced war, it is something different. Yeah. So yeah, and and I do, I play a lot of dark games. I play a lot of Cthulhu themed things. I'm one of the crazy people that plays Kingdom Death Monster. Oh, um, awesome. And, and yeah, I mean, you want to talk about dark and I've thought about, you know, some of the people that don't want to play it the 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 problem is the theme and the darkness so i'm looking at it and thinking could i turn these into little cute minis who are building a village and just hunting hunting and gathering rather than murdering monsters i think it's possible <laughs> but all of the people that are that are dumping all of their savings into this game are no longer going to be interested <laughs> so i'm right. not recommending that at all i mean i i think we have we have a lot of there are a lot of light games. I'm looking at my uh, Crossmaster Arena, which I have not played in forever, and it is adorable, but definitely has some some deeper strategy in it. So I I think it's I think it's nice that we have a lot of variety, but I also mm-hmm. think it would be really nice to have a super heavy game that is more about rainbows and unicorns and flowers, just <laughs> right. for when you yeah. need something bright in your life. <laughs> It's actually, you made me think of something interesting. I think, especially when it comes to Euro games, a lot of gamers like to complain that the game is technically themeless, even if it has a theme attached to it. But I would be really curious to know if there was a, not necessarily a pure Euro game, but a game like Cthulhu Wars or, ooh, actually, what about Letters from Whitechapel? Okay, so Letters from Whitechapel is about finding Jack the Ripper and capturing mm-hmm. him. That's very dark. It's based on a real person who did horrible things. What if you took Letters from Whitechapel and made a version of it where it was trying to find a lost cat in a city and everyone is out searching for this cat and the cat keeps escaping because cats are wily, but you kept all of the mechanics as close to the same as you could and had people play both and see if the experiences were different. Like if I mean, I imagine, of course, they would be, but how would they be different, I guess, would be my curiosity, Mm. is if the theme of the game in and of itself could drastically change how you experience a game. Yeah, that would be interesting. And now I want to play a game about finding a lost cat. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds like a great social experiment. Yeah. (laughs) I, I honestly think that that would be something really interesting, especially for game designers and developers to kind of... Because... Theme is important, but I don't think we all really know how important or in what ways it is important. We can guess, we can speculate, we can share our own opinions, but really in the grand scheme of things, I don't know if I could say what the most important parts of the theme of a game are. <laughs> and it's hard to think about because with games already published, you you know what the theme is and it's hard to like separate it. Right. And a lot of game designers kind of start with theme and then work their way into the mechanics, too. So and and thinking about like re-implementations like Ghost Stories was recently re-implemented as something that I should know the name of uh, more of a fantasy theme. Last Bastion. Yes. Last Bastion. Thank you. It'll be interesting to see if the Ghost Stories lovers go out and get the new version or if the fantasy theme fans play a game that they never would have touched because it was horror themed 
So I think those things are interesting. And, and you know, Mansions of Madness and the Lord of the Rings game are very, oh, yeah, very yeah. similar. Mm-hmm. So. Very cool. Well, we would love to hear our listeners' thoughts on this topic. We've just we've touched on a lot of big things here. So if you have thoughts you'd like to share, please head over to our Board Game Geek Guild, our Facebook page, our Twitter, or our Instagram, and leave us a comment. We would love to know your thoughts on this. And to that point, in our last episode, where we were talking about the hypothetical situation, what if everyone played games, one of our listeners, who we love very much, Adrian, actually shared a thought with us that I thought was pretty perfect. And it, she said that if everyone played games, she thinks that there would be more dropping over to people's houses, like it was back in the old days. Neighbors would probably actually know each other, and maybe we would hang out a little bit more. And I actually think that that's pretty true. I will admit, I used to know my neighbors when I was younger, and the older mm -hmm. I've gotten, the less that has seemed to happen. Um, and Abby, you've even talked about that the neighbors of yours that you play board games with, you know better than your other neighbors. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, oh, he's not a neighbor anymore. He moved to Germany, but. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, he just needed more board games, clearly. So he moved to Germany. <laughs> but yeah, I think if everyone played board games that like, yeah, you would maybe hang out with the people closer to you proximity wise. So thank yeah. you, Adrian, for sharing your thought there. And uh, again, if you all share thoughts on this episode that we, we might put them into a future episode because yeah. That's always fun to do. For this week's etymology segment, we're going to look at the origins of the word point. The English noun point, meaning minute amount, single item in a hole, or sharp end of a sword, can be traced back to the 1200s and was actually a combination of two words that both came from the Latin word pungere, meaning to prick or pierce. The Latin female past participle of pungere was puncta, which was used in medieval Latin to mean sharp tip and became the old French point, spelled with an E at the end, meaning point of a weapon or vanguard of an army. That word also passed into English in the early 14th century. Point has developed many definitions from other uses in Latin, French, and English. The definition, a small mark or dot, originated in the mid-14th century, where the definition, distinguishing feature, wasn't recorded until the late 15th century. The part where it ties us back into board games, its meaning of a unit of score in a game, was first recorded in 1746. So America didn't even exist yet, and we were already calculating points in games. <laughs> the next time you're having trouble calculating your final score in a game, knowing the definition of the word point probably won't help, but now you know it anyway. And that's it for this week's Board Game Blitz. Visit our website, BoardGameBlitz.com, for video and blog content, as well as to get links to all our social media pages. This episode was sponsored by Gray Fox Games. The Kickstarter campaign for Zoned Out is ending today, so if you enjoy fast, strategic city-building games, head to Kickstarter now to secure your copy. Gray Fox Games, quality games cleverly crafted. If you're enjoying the show, you can rate and review us on your podcast provider or consider becoming a patron. For as little as $1 a month, you can unlock access to unedited episodes and our private Slack channel, which lets you chat with us and other Blitz computers directly. Head to patreon.com slash boardgameblitz to become a patron today. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Morrow. Technical support provided by Toby Mount. Board Game Blitz is part of the Dice Tower Network. Until next time, I'll play games with you like you want me to. I won't be a fool. I'll learn all of the rules. Bye, everyone. Bye! 
The only reason I ordered it off Amazon is because I needed it quickly because I'm going to take it with my, uh, to visit when I visit my, bleh, bleh, I can't talk. <laughs> or they like the games that have tetra, tetramino, is that, that's not the? Polyomino. Pol, polyomino. Why did I say, because tetramino is the Tetris one. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> We talk about how the theme of a game can affect a game's shelf presence, likability. Okay, so I need to change this because we didn't talk about shelf presence at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as soon as I said it, I said, well, that's not true. This is why we'd record the intro last. <laughs> it's alliteration time, everyone. Last episode, we asked you to re-theme a game about preventing bombs from blowing up for emergency responders who don't like many types of food. What game was that, Ambi? That was Finicky Firefighter Fuse. And we had some correct guesses there for sure. This episode, we are asking you to retheme a game about making wine for people with high moral values who take care of sick animals. Good luck, everyone. <laughs>